0: Grab a seat, grab some notes for our class today. Ben and Jack are passing them out to you. All right. If you're if you're just now becoming aware, we have one classroom combined today. Dave Frengel, who's been instructing on the book Francis Schaefer and a Christian Manifesto, is not here today, so I'm taking that class for him. Pastor David is preaching in both services, so I'm taking that class for him. So we're combining together today. and in lieu of your marriage class, we are going to continue on with the book, Francis Schaeffer, A Christian Manifesto, today. My task today is to do chapter 7, uh, a little bit of review there, and quite a bit of all of chapter 8, The Use of c- Civil Disobedience. A really, a really pressing topic to us today as we think about the state of our own nation as we think about what is happening along the border very interesting what's what's happening between the state of texas and the federal government we may even get into some relevant content here pertaining to that let me go ahead and pray for us as we get started i think you're going to find today's class to be extraordinarily interesting and very relevant to us at this time in our nation's history so let's pray and ask for the lord's help heavenly father thank you so much for our time to be together today for this class i do thank you for our Regular instructors, Um, I thank you for Dave Frengel. I thank you for Pastor David, his preaching this morning, already so wonderful. We look forward to the second service as well. But, Father, for the moment, we have much work to do together as we think about the Christian's responsibility to the state, and particularly to even a nation that may be considered as wayward or wandering from you. Uh, We think about these things, and we are not the first generation of Christians to think about how. We must relate to the civil governments, Father, sometimes in great obedience and perhaps other times even being called to disobedience. And so, Father, we pray that the use of Francis Schaefer's book would help us to understand these things. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you've been down the hall with Dave Frengel in his class, we are looking at a book called Francis Schaefer. That's the author, A Christian Manifesto. And this book largely speaking, has to do with the interrelationship between the Christian or the church and the state. And the states could be anything from uh, influenced by Christianity, such as the United States of America, to relationship with states that are entirely pagan, such as the Roman government was in the time of the first century. And for some of you here joining this class, if you've been in the marriage class, we are jumping right into the thick of it because we're coming down to one of the most important questions that this particular book addresses, which is what happens when the Christian must, in order to be obedient to God, must actually disobey the state. And so this is largely, I'm covering today, chapter 7 and 8 in a Christian manifesto the limits of civil disobedience and the use of civil disobedience so jumping right into it in chapter 7 Francis Schaeffer says this on page 89 now we'll just take this as our jumping-off point I think you're gonna see uh, that we are jumping into the deep points the deep end of this conversation immediately here he says quoting we have reached a place today now remember he died in 1981 and here we are 2024 but he is saying even in his day 1981 we have reached a place today which is violently opposed to what the founding fathers of this country and those in the 13 original states, individual states, had in mind when they came together and formed this union. Now, a lot has happened since he died. I think he died in 84, actually, but this book was written in 1981. Let me correct myself. But he's already saying here, notice this, he's making something of an alarming statement, isn't he? He says, we have reached a place today by his own assessment the united states in the in the year 1981 which he publishes this which is violently opposed to what the founding fathers of this country and those in the 13 individual states had in mind now you could disagree with that that's fine um, what i'm presenting to you is what francis Schaeffer has taught about these things so if you have any any disagreement with the presentation um you could you know address your concerns to mr Schaefer, but unfortunately he's dead so he can't reply to you you may try to soften this up and say well I don't know about that Francis Schaeffer we may reach a place at some point in our future which is violently opposed to what the founding fathers has in mind but Francis Schaeffer here says in the beginning of chapter 7 no we're already there and what exactly is he referring to well he's referring to the sort of moral decay that he was already exper- experiencing I've thought and said this before that Francis Schaeffer is quite prescient um in the way that he saw mega trends he saw the big trends and what we're experiencing today is the working out of those trends that he was already able to identify so so very early on so you could disagree with this statement here if you want to and that's fine with me if you do but then he asks a rhetorical question that i think we have to address today i have to address it just to be fair to my work here in summarizing these chapters But it is a question that i think more and more christians are discussing even today here in 2024 the question is this has god set up an authority in the state that is autonomous from himself are we to obey the state no matter what to say it in so many words well are we he asks in this is this one area in which man is the measure of all things and I, Francis Schaeffer speaking here, would answer, no, not at all, not at all, okay? So what is he saying here? Well, he's, he's dealing with the stress question of what happens when our allegiance to God, primarily as our, as our true and highest authority, puts us in a place of, of tension and fracture with where the state is leading us or what the state is demanding from us. You can almost imagine yourself like in the cartoons where a character is standing on a fault line, right? And in in the cartoons, when an earthquake would happen, the earth would just kind of open up. You could almost imagine you're straddling this position that keeps getting wider and wider and putting you in a moral position in which at some point you've got to decide, like, am I going to jump to this side to save my life or am I going to jump to the other side to save my life? But I cannot reasonably continue to straddle an ever-widening chasm, right? And so at some points, though we would recognize our nation as an authority, no question about that, you should, and we're going to talk about that, what happens when the the stress is so, uh, so acute that we must either obey God or the state? Well, the answer is rhetorically obvious. We have to obey God, okay? There's no question. We have to. Is the state such an authority to our lives that it is essentially autonomous? From itself having to obey God? Well, that would be another way of of forming the same question here. Does man, and Francis Schaeffer, one of the things he's always hammering on, if you know his works, he's always hammering on this idea that man has somehow become independent from the authority of God, especially in the Enlightenment period and thereafter. And so um, we know that, that Francis Schaeffer is going to say no, right? The state is not. An autonomous authority that has its own just like blank check to demand anything to command anything independent from the authority of of the lord god and so on uh, page uh well something in chapter 7 francis schaeffer likes to do stuff like this and this is why it's good to actually read the book because they'll put these little word puzzles in the book it's, he does this throughout many of his writings and Schaefer he, he recalls Matthew twenty two, twenty one, which is the seminal text in which Jesus is talking about obedience to the state being the Roman government and pertinence to taxes. And Francis Schaefer asks, Is it like this that you have God and Caesar as your authorities, dual authorities in your life, Christian? Or should we better conceive of it as God as the ultimate authority and Caesar as a sub-authority underneath God's true and ultimate authority, okay? Now, the context of Matthew 22 is pretty important because in Matthew 22, what's happening is that some people have come to Jesus and it specifically says that they've come to entrap him in their words. They're trying to trick Jesus. And they ask him, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And remember, they're coming with pretensions. It's not like it's an honest question, and like they're really wanting to know what Jesus is going to say. It's a trap question. Because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar in so many words, well, then remember, it's Caesar and his government that is actively oppressing the Jews. And so if they can try to trick Jesus into some sort of unqualified support of the Roman governments, then he would lose then the following of his Jewish brethren who would have something to say about that, okay? Yet on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, refuse Caesar the taxes that he is owed, then Jesus is put into the uncomfortable position of being an open revolutionary against the state, And so you can see how this was kind of what we would call a false dilemma fallacy in logic, trying to trick him to make a particular choice that puts him in his own set of certain danger. Well, Jesus has nothing of that, of course. And as the perfect teacher, Jesus replies that we are to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to give to God what belongs to God, okay? So what would you say? What's the proper way to diagram this? Is it God and Caesar, as on the top of the screen, or is it God and Caesar, as he has it on the bottom of the screen? What do you think? It's the bottom, yes, because the ultimate authority, the ultimate allegiance of the, of the, of the Christian must always be to the Lord God, and that's going to put us in some felt tension, in our real lives okay now David and I we, in the CE committee we've actually been coming up with this idea for a theological conference for this fall we're gonna get back to it this year 2024 and we're pretty sure at this point that we're gonna do a whole conference on the Christian in relation to the states and we're gonna ask a bunch of different questions and frame it from different angles invite some excellent scholars to come talk about these things. One of the things that we'd like to hear in that conference is a full exegesis of Romans chapter 13, because it's a pretty important biblical text when it comes to our understanding of how we should obey, respectively, the state and its authority and pertinence to God. But here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Let's just read this text and we'll try to do what we can with it in just a few minutes. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's just pretty sweeping the way he says it. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3 For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? For the authorities are ministers of god attending to this very thing pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to whom honor is owed so that's paul's kind of basic framework for the christian's relationship to the state and you're going to notice here that if this is all we had in the bible it's a pretty strong statement about civil obedience to the state in fact there's not a lot of wiggle room here for us to all of a sudden be kind of like quasi rebels trying to to seek to undo our government or anything like that in fact the text reads exactly the opposite of that that this should imply a strong sense of of loyalty to the authorities because at the beginning of the text what he says here is that all of the authorities that exist are essentially under the sovereignty of god remember god has ordained all things and everything that works out in providence is because of the absolute sovereignty of god over all things and so in some sense when you're rebelling against what god has instituted you could be said to be in rebellion against god and we certainly don't want that okay but even here it does not seem that we should read into it in unqualified and absolute obedience to the state because though this sets up what God would hypothetically require of the state under ideal circumstances, bearing the sword and things like that, of course, as we know, in the real world, the state messes up all the time. And in fact, the state is very often in disobedience itself to the institutions of God. And that's why I have highlighted here in gold or in yellow the word good, because notice uh, what he says here, then do good. But we could ask this question, good according to who? Good according to who? Good according to the state? Well, what does the state want from you? Unqualified obedience at all times. No state likes to be challenged in its authority. But for the Christian, remember, there's a good that's better than good. For the Christian, real good, ultimate good, the highest good, is always going to be obedience to the true and living God, over and above anything else somebody else would demand of you. Okay? So if it comes t- down to an argument on words, what does it mean to do good, then we should ultimately define the word doing good as good according to God, even if that would put us at the very edge of the very sword here that the state has been given discharge over. It could be that our obedience to God will require us to do disobedience to the state. Now, all things considered here, what I would say is that this text represents the default mode and the default attitude of the Christian. We should have obedient hearts, okay, even when we don't particularly like it. If the state tells me that 65 miles an hour is the limit, not the guideline, okay, not the average, if it tells me that's the limit of the speed that I should, that I should drive, then that's the limit, okay. All things being considered, my default position is obedience, because I don't want to put myself in the jeopardy of coming under the sword of the state which does have the 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 authority under God's under God's providence to punish the wrongdoer. So I don't want to do that in my life. I don't want to put myself in this that kind of legal jeopardy. Here's a similar statement from 1 Peter chapter 2, okay? 1 Peter 2:13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now again, man, that sounds sweeping, doesn't it? Sure does love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, again, that sounds really sweeping, and I think it is intended to be so. Your default position should be honor, reverence, obedience, and compliance, in as much as it is possible. What are we trying to be here? Free people. We're trying to be free, to live as free. But again, notice here these terms of good and evil here that are discussed in this passage. And again, when we come to the word like, a word like good or like evil, we do have to ask a question. Evil according to who? Evil according to what? Good according to who? And for us as Christian believers, whenever we establish the difference between good and evil, uh, it is God who defines these things for us. And so, yeah, that's going to put us at times and places in a point of tension. Now, pause here when the early Christians read these letters of Paul and Peter, which civil governments would naturally pop into their mind as the, the application of these texts? Who is it? Rome. Rome. Okay. A persecutor of Christians. Rome, who was a persecutor of Christians, such as to put many of our forefathers to death either by burning at the stake or a death by the sword or death later on in the arenas or death by the lions as it would take place in the second, third centuries. These are pretty serious stakes here. Okay. And so once again, we should rightly take these texts as very much guidance straight into the heart, straight into the heart that Christian people are primarily not rebels. We are not rebellious. We are not those who are trouble seekers because, if anything, it's for the good of our witness that we would live as free peoples, yet ultimately defining the good as God himself would define it. So let's think here, and this is what Francis Schaefer is leading us to consider, so far in what we've covered, the default Christian position, you know when you get a computer you've got the default settings, it's the settings that come with it, okay, unless you start manipulating things and adding apps and changing out the programs and rewriting things. The default position of the Christian heart should be obedience okay not disobedience peace certainly peace not violence my goodness we're not that kind of revolutionary normally civil service we should be the kind of people that actually contribute to the good of our neighborhoods and our local authorities and our state authorities our commonwealth and even our nation we should be the kind of citizen statesman here that recognize that we have a dual citizenship. We're really citizens of heaven, Paul tells us in Philippians, but we do have to live in the here and now. So we have the freedom to speak out against things that we should speak out against. We have the freedom to take a stand when we need to take a stand. And I think that we should be those people who are patriotic and loyal to the nation in which we live. I'm thankful for where we are here in the United States of America as over again some of the other places that I could have been born very thankful okay I see nothing wrong with a strong um, evidences of patriotism patriotism I think that's a very good thing and I certainly wouldn't blame a French man for being patriotic to France or a German for being patriotic to Germany or a Mexican for being patriotic to Mexico I think all of that is very becoming of Christians to be supportive of their homeland and thankful for the privileges and the prerogatives that they do have. So all things being equal, all things being considered, here is the default setting for the Christian life. You should ascribe to these things, obedience, peace, civil service, be the citizen statesman, which means you're free to run for Congress, you're free to intervene, you're free to uh, vote, you're free to be active, you're free to run for city council or school board. Do all of those things as a free citizen, a Christian citizen, loving your nation and loyal to its good. However, and here we come up to the moment where we have to begin to take in some other biblical passages into our fuller framework for understanding this concept. Francis Schaeffer argues, and I think he's exactly right, and this is not original to Francis Schaeffer, but there are some other writers that he himself is depending on, that there are two specific instances in which not only is disobedience to the state um, permissible, but actually required. Okay, you would be required to disobey the state under these two conditions. And we're going to talk about some biblical examples for both of these conditions here in just a moment. The first one is, when the state commands what God forbids. Okay, So when the state positively commands you to do something, anything, which God, through the authority of his holy scriptures, forbids, then therein you are straddling upon that unbridgeable chasm in which you must jump to one side or the other okay to use my earth splitting fault line analogy here when the state commands you to do what god forbids therein is your duty by god to disobey the state okay the other is exactly the opposite of that but still in concert with divine law when the state forbids you to do what god commands then again you must disobey the state to be allegiant to the lord god so let's look at four biblical examples of how these principles would work out in a real-life setting now these are extreme they're extreme examples for sure but there are very often times throughout history in which extreme examples become the actual scenario in which christian believers are forced to live okay so these aren't merely hypothetical Uh, these are pretty instructional as it turns out for these kinds of examples that come out throughout history Here's our first one. So this would be an example of the state forbidding what God commands. Okay, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 4 with me, please. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be somewhat expedient as we go through these these examples. Some of these will already be familiar to you. I shouldn't have to describe too much of the biblical context of these passages because I trust that you know your Bible and you probably see where I'm going with this. okay? So in Acts chapter 4, we have a very clear example of the authorities forbidding what it is which God commands. And in this case, in the context, what God commands is that we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, We preach. We are preachers. We are testifiers. We are witnesses. We are evangelists. Ordained or not, uh, that is part of your duty is to be salt and light in the world. And whenever that is forbidden by the authorities, we should rebel against that. In context here, um, Peter and John have just done a tremendous miracle by God's power. In chapter 3, immediately preceding our context, by God's grace, a lame beggar has been healed uh, in or at or near the temple. And this causes a great stir, as you might imagine. The authorities are alarmed by this because this healing authenticates the apostolic power and authority that the apostles have as delegated witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do they begin to crack down on the early church uh, by arresting and by persecuting the believers, but they come into a moment of a confrontation here where they're seeing, look at Acts chapter four, verse 13, the boldness of Peter and John perceiving that they were uneducated common men, they are astonished and they recognize that they'd been with Jesus. So what do they do? Well, the authorities, wise as they are, say this in verse 17, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So therein is your forbiddance of what God commands. They're expressly saying you must not do what the Lord Jesus Christ has very clearly and unequivocally called you to do, which is to preach the name of Jesus. And what is Peter's answer to this? Well, Peter, having a good theology of uh, church and state, we might say, says this in verse 19 Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Okay? Peter says, Not going to do it. I'm sorry, we're not going to close our mouths, we're not going to be silenced when God has called us to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may recall, just a moment ago, I quoted from a letter that Peter wrote. And same author that's speaking here, okay? So to interpret each passage aright, we need to use the other. So in 1 Peter, when he, when he seems to be asking us for an unqualified obedience to the state, remember, it's the same guy who tells us here in this, in this text that no, unfortunately, we are not going to obey any authority that forbids us to do what the law of God commands us to do. And and by the way, anytime you do that, you better be ready to accept the consequences because consequences are probably going to come. Most of the time, the state or the authorities do not particularly like it um, when you speak so openly against their authority. So there's a pretty clear example of the state or the authorities, in this case, forbidding what God commands. Now here's another one, and there's actually a couple of these in the book of Daniel. Uh, The the authority here, the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar being the king, forbids what God commands. In this instance, they're trying to seek a way. Uh, They're trying to seek a trap against faithful believers here, and they're forbidding what God commands in context here, which is prayer. Okay, Daniel 6, 6 to 7, then These high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. I'm sorry, Darius, not Nebuchadnezzar. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. There it is. There's your forbidding what God commands. God commands us to pray to him, and the state has now just forbid it. So what does Daniel do? Do you remember the story? Well, he doesn't pray until the injunction is over, right? No, of course not. He prays. As a matter of fact, he prays with the window open. Okay? Uh, So that presumably he could be seen, even heard. Not that he's trying to stick stick in the eye of the state, But because his conscience cannot be compelled, he won't do it. And of course, the moment you disobey the state who has the sword or the authority, you have to be ready to accept the consequences. In his case, it is being thrown into lions then, which he is. Okay, now let's switch it up and let's look at an example of commanding what God forbids. Okay, we do have a couple of examples of that as well in the Bible. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 1. And here is an example of uh, the pagan authority commanding precisely what God forbids, which is the taking of a life unjustly. Exodus chapter one, verse fifteen. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Pua When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. Now, boy, this is a moral dilemma if there ever was one, right? The state here is actually commanding the killing of these small children, commanding the killing of these Hebrew male children, presumably because the state doesn't want the the Hebrews to rise up in strength and number. And so they're going to do some sort of ancient form of population control here, and they're going to try to reduce the number of the babies that are born. And not only that uh, for that generation, but inhibit their ability to reproduce in the next generation as only female children are able to be uh, brought into life here. But thankfully, and I'm so glad that the scripture records their names here. This is beautiful. These two people otherwise unknown, Shipra and Pua, well their their consciences cannot be controlled by the pagan authority and they do exactly what the scripture commands them to do which is to let these children be born alive and again risking civil authority and punishment but what does it say here it's interesting that um, God actually blessed these women and gave them family so not only do they incur at least theoretically the wrath of the state but they also win for themselves the blessing and the protection of of God here, which does seem to be a theme in some of these examples that I'm giving, that God uh, very often acts in the protection and the favor of those who are willing to stand out in such ways. Here's one more, uh, commanding what God forbids. Back in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Okay, so here in context, remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar commanding people to bow down and to worship this idol statue, this 90-foot gold statue that he makes and here we have three more names of brothers brave enough to have their names recorded in history here who will not uh, do what what God forbids which is the worshiping of idols and they have to be willing then to accept the civil penal consequence of their disobedience to the state which is being burned alive an unenviable punishment uh, we could certainly say but nevertheless one in which God sustains them with his preserving grace and favor now on chapter uh, 7, pages 94 and 95, Francis Schaeffer suggests here that Protestant Christians do well to prepare themselves in terms of physical might against in the encroaching powers of ungodly civil government. I, I will just tell you one thing. And I hope you don't think I'm disrespecting Francis Schaeffer because I, I, I truly love him if I would have known him and I respect his work a lot of criticism has come against Francis Schaeffer for his history sometimes Francis Schaeffer has in a lot of his books the tendency to gloss over history uh, so quickly he's often been accused of sometimes missing the trees for the sake of the forest if you know what I mean by that sometimes people have fault, found fault with his recounting of history as just all too smooth, all all too convenient for the points that he's trying to make. So you can judge this yourself, and I commend you to the study. But Francis Schaeffer says that when it comes to the Reformation nations, those nations that were more prepared to defend themselves with might ended up doing better in terms of the ultimate outcome of the Reformation revival. And he cites examples on these pages of the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland. Again, you do the history. I'm just telling you what Francis Schaeffer says. He says that those peoples, those Protestant peoples which were ready and prepared to fight if necessary, ultimately resulted for the betterment of their nation when it came to the conflict that was inevitable with the authorities that be. And then he cites these three nations, Hungary, France and Spain, as counterexamples that were not ready to defend themselves militarily if if by force if necessary hungary france and spain now again i'm just qualifying that you can disagree with his history if you want to i'm just summarizing for you chapter seven in the book now at some point francis schaeffer then he turns his attention to john knox john knox we did a little bit of a lesson on him some time ago during reformation sunday we mentioned him a little bit Knox of the reformers is on the early end of cutting out then a theology of civil disobedience for the sake of the reformed that's us Protestant reformed right that's who we are Presbyterians so quoting here from Francis Schaeffer whereas reformers such as Martin Luther and John Calvin had reserved the right to rebellion to civil rulers alone Knox went further he maintained that the common people had the right and the duty to disobedience and to rebel if state officials ruled contrary to the bible to do otherwise knox holds would be rebellion against god okay thus in almost every place where the reformation flourished there was not only religious non-compliance i.e to roman catholicism there was civil disobedience as well okay now what he's saying here is that for Luther and Calvin, in order for disobedience to be justifiable, it had to be done under the authority of a lesser magistrate. We're thinking here in terms of kingdoms, right? You'd have a king over the whole nation, and then there'd be other civil authorities, what we might call governors or something like that. So in Calvin's writing, though Calvin does hold a place, theoretically, for rebellion against an ungodly king, it would have to be done under the lawful lesser magistrate. The governor, let's say, would have to, under his authority, then rebel against his higher authority, which is the king. But Knox, you see, actually goes further than that. You tracking with this? Knox says that, no, actually, the people themselves can rise up to undo a king if uh, to do otherwise would be to rebel against God. So that's a little bit stronger. And this goes further than what, what Calvin would have said. So Knox and Calvin, two contemporaries, disagreeing on when is the right moment for the people to rise up against an ungodly king. Now, enter a very influential figure here. This is going to affect us directly here in the United States of America Samuel Rutherford. He is a Scotch Presbyterian minister. 1600 to 1661 he uh, preaches at Anwath Uh, he was one of the six Scots who attended the Westminster Assembly those men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith everybody with me so far Samuel Rutherford is one of the six Scots who helps at the Westminster in fact he had a very influential position in devising the shorter catechism okay so he's pretty influential Um, he is a the principal of St. Mary's College at St. Andrews and he authors a book that's really going to impact our nation eventually called Lex Rex Latin law is king the law is the king is the title of his book okay you can see maybe where this is going here are the principal uh, doctrines of this book Lex Rex and there's a bunch of them first it is the law of the land that is actually the king not the king the king is subject to the law not the law subject to the king that's a flipperoo over the understood principle that the king is the king he's the king of the kings right the king is the king of the law that's kind of a different theology of the, the divine right of kings they have god's blessing to be the king and therefore everybody must do as they say rutherford says no no actually the law is the king and so therefore government itself is limited by certain principles Uh, Rutherford and the others are arguing for a constitutionalism that takes something of the form of a national covenant, which the Scots are actually going to try to do, okay? So he overtly attacks the divine right of kings, which obviously did not make the king of England or Scotland or Ireland very particularly happy. But the law, the law of the land is to be discerned through the moral principles that scripture gives us as a guide. And so the king must be subject to the law. And by the way, part of what he is supposed to do is to secure the freedom of true religion in any given land. Therefore, rebellious kings are actually tyrants. And tyranny, he says, is always immoral. Even satanic. Okay, tyranny is satanic. Now, um, his book made a a real big splash until the restoration. (laughs) The king regained power in which it was Uh, burned, and they would have burned him too, but Samuel Rutherford died before he could incur civil penalty. Now, I, I just want to remind you really quickly of the period in which the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, because as it turns out, in England's history, this is really, really important, you have kings in England, still have a king today, right? What's the name of the current king of England? Charles. Not either of these two Charleses, but there was a period where they did not have a king. You had King Charles I. He was actually deposed and he was ultimately executed. Later on, his son, Charles II, came back during the period of the Restoration. But for a while, when they did not have a king, Parliament was in charge, and they call, we call this the interregnum, the time between the kings, okay? And so here you see where the Westminster Assembly met on the heels of English Civil War. In which the parliament actually did war against their own king. Could you imagine a time where that would actually happen? Where Congress would go against the civil head? Hmm, interesting. So that's actually what happened. They had a civil war. The king was deposed temporarily, parliament ruled. And during the Westminster Confession of Faith, that's the moment, 1644, where Samuel Rutherford writes Lex Rex, a very influential moment in history. So, uh, this is Francis Schaefer quoting again here. Rutherford presents several arguments to establish the right and duty of resistance to unlawful government. First, since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Second, since the ruler is granted power conditionally, it follows that the people have the power to withdraw their sanction if the proper conditions are not fulfilled now here is that idea of covenantal or constitutionalism the king's authority is ultimately given by the people themselves if not explicitly in written terms at least implicitly in what we might call the social contract okay the king can't just be the king because he says i said i'm the king that's not enough the king can only be the king by the social contract of the people themselves conferring the right of the monarchy to him, okay? And again, Rutherford is arguing pretty manifestly here that if that authority becomes tyrannical, then the people have the right to rebel against it. Can you see now why uh, during the Revolutionary War our Protestant, Calvinistic, and Presbyterian forefathers thought it perhaps even a duty to rise up against uh, the king during the time of the Revolution? because they had been imbibing in the theology of Lex Rex and Samuel Rutherford's understanding of the relationship between the church and the state. A ruler, he wrote, quoting Schaefer, should not be deposed merely because he commits a single breach of the compact he has with the people. This is so important, I wish we had more time this morning. Only when the magistrate acts in such a way that the governing structure of the country is being destroyed that is he's attacking the fundamental structure of society is he to be relieved of his power and his authority that is exactly what we are facing today that's Schaefer, 1981 he wrote that okay so do you understand what he's saying here if the king messes up once it's not enough if the king restricts the speed limit to 35 in an area that you think it should be 65 okay well that's not enough to overthrow him Uh, if the king says the taxation rate should be 30% and you think 20% would be fair, one breach of the social contract is not enough for you to overthrow that person. But here's what Francis Schaeffer is saying. When that um, rebellion of a tyrannical state is so endemic that it's actually causing the fracturing of society itself, that's the moment. That's the moment. When the actions of the monarchy or the tyranny or the civil government or the emperor is so detrimental to the good of society that you look left and you look right and society is pulling apart at the fabric, that's the moment. Okay, so, like, what do you say about that? Well, goodness gracious. Uh, um, Rutherford says that there are three levels of resistance then. First, you protest using every available civil recourse in other words first of all things like well protest and lawsuits okay you gotta make your claim you gotta prove it in court if possible you have to change the laws now if that doesn't work then Rutherford says and I know you're ready to jump to number three but Rutherford says then your next best option is actually fleeing From the tyrannical authority okay but herein is the problem there are certain times when you can't just flee that's practically if not purposefully impossible so what do you do then well then you're left with your last available option which is force okay so again this is all uh, Rutherford's ideas as mitigated through Francis Schaeffer's mind in chapters chapter 8 now on the use of force Schaefer says that that's not the same thing as violence so don't be confused you don't you don't just run to violence violence is when everybody runs out there and just does something absolutely arbitrary and malevolent that's when the that's when the mob takes up its pitchforks and its torches and tries to burn the city down that's not what we're talking about here there is a difference between force and violence okay so, force on the left of our Venn diagram would be that which is just. Remember, lex rex, the law is God. It has to be restrained. It can't be just unmitigated. It has to be appropriate. It has to seek honor, establish order, and be done under the auspices of a lesser magistrate. Okay? Again, you can't just run out as an individual citizen and just burn down the town because you don't like something. That's not the way it works. But violence, on the other hand, is brutal, lawless, vengeful, disorderly, unrestrained, fueled by hate, and seeking the dishonor of the other. Okay. I'm just going, I'm going to go until I, until I'm almost out of time here. I think we're almost done, actually. Now, here's where it gets really interesting for the American context, because our nation was um, fairly explicitly conceived through Rutherford um, as it comes through the sieve of the mind of John Locke, okay, who is not necessarily a traditional Orthodox Christian theologian. Locke, in his understanding of civil life, he took Rutherford's ideas. First of all, he combs out all the Reformed theology. Okay, Rutherford is explicitly Reformed. He's one of the Westminster divines he eliminates also the presbyterian uh, ecclesiology idea but what Locke does is he essentially secularizes Rutherford's theology and he comes up with four ideas that are obviously going to sound very very familiar to you first inalienable rights okay does that sound familiar to you yes government by consent of the people okay that's certainly in our fabric separation of powers which we have uh, executive branch legislative branch judicial branch and then ultimately the right of revolution okay so that's pretty much the the main thinker whose conceptions are basically the very fabric of our of our nation today so rounding up here Francis Schaeffer back in 1981 dies in 84 here we are 2024 in these chapters he points out what he thinks are five problems as he can discern them in his own time you ready number one tax dollars for abortion now at the time he's writing there was something called the Hyde amendment which prevented your tax dollars from directly supporting abortions church that has only recently in the last administration been finally removed so that today what Francis Schaeffer feared is indeed exactly happening okay second Schaefer was very concerned with the secularization of school curriculum. He's very concerned about that. He thinks that's a big problem. Third, Marxism in the schools. Although he says almost comically, like at least it's not, at least that's not happening. Here we are 2024, it's overtly happening. Fourth, um, when the federal government usurps states' rights, that's a problem. And then finally, uh, you will be led to what will inevitably become statism, which is where the state becomes your God, and it demands absolute, unqualified, and total obedience from all of its citizens. And Francis Schaefer warns throughout his writings, that's a really scary place to be. Okay, Statism is the worship of the state as though it were your God, and we should uh, earnestly and wholeheartedly refuse it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for clear writers who've come before us. And dear God, we do pray that you would help us to be obedient as our default position, civil statesmen and those who, who love our nation and are patriotic to it. But God, given um, some of the things that we're experiencing today, certainly what Francis Schaeffer has said in these two chapters, do, they do shake us, Lord. They do, they do cause us to think and to tremble some some bit. And so all we can do for the morning, Heavenly Father, for this morning is, is to continue to pray for your help and for your leadership and your guidance. And Lord, most especially that you would bring revival to our land. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.